Hello everyone and welcome to Pay Attention. I hope uh, you're snuggling with a nice uh, cup of tea, coffee or whiskey, whichever you prefer. I have my own so I'm good to go and today we're going to do the last episode in our chargeback and fraud and sort of diving into these these topics so the last episode in that uh, we can call it a series and after which I have been promised by Miri who is also here with me to uh, have a very long uh, break from any risk related issues so uh, for some of you, this will be a great disappointment. For others, uh, yay. So uh, our topic for today is fraud. And I will make it very, very clear what I'm not going to talk about. So I'm not going to be talking about actual fraud. I'm going to be mostly focusing on the, for lack of a better term, what the card uh, schemes and issuers refer to as fraud reports and I will be looking at that from from that that point of view um, we may have at some point in the future an actual episode about about real fraud which I think is kind of like unicorns but um, I'll leave my monologues to the side and during this episode I'm mostly going to sort of provide an overview and slight, uh, or also, I will also touch upon the um, best practices for merchants and what to do with fraud. Uh, there's not that much to do, uh, as you will see when I actually get to that. So it will be a relatively short section when we talk about uh, how to deal with that. So uh, let's jump right into it. Um, I'll start first from from actually sort of the, the thing that I come across quite a lot uh, when discussing this topic with, with merchants, uh, the misconception and the confusion between uh, fraud and chargebacks. So these are oftentimes um, seen as a sort of interchangeable terms. I think the main reason for this confusion is because one of the reasons uh, or, you know, one of the, the family of, of reason codes for chargebacks, as we've discussed in the previous episode, is fraud. So there is a whole family or category of reason codes that would fall under the classification of fraud. So typically when somebody receives a fraud-related chargeback, you know, the, the main idea is and the main confusion is that it is considered to be, okay, I've received a fraud report. Um, that's not the case. A fraud report is a completely separate thing from chargebacks. There is an interlink between them, and I will cover this, but they, they, these are two separate things. Um, what is a fraud report? So if you remember correctly, um, in the last episode when we, we discussed chargebacks, we said that the chargeback is, in fact, a forced refund. So this is a, a, um, a refund that the cardholder through their issuing bank uh, basically forces upon the merchant for a particular reason. And again, that reason could be fraud related, meaning that the cardholder is claiming that they did not perform the transaction on which we are this, uh, talking about. And fraud is, is something that is, is different. A fraud report is the issuer. Uh, meaning the financial organization that issued the the card that we are uh, that that was used in order to make the transaction is flagging a certain transaction or multiple transactions as being fraudulent now 
the main difference between that and the chargeback, if you've noticed my terminology, is chargebacks are something that originate with the cardholder. And so they, they have to have the cardholders, meaning the, the, the customer, they have to have their active participation. And oftentimes the cardholder is the originator of the chargeback. So it, it is the person that comes to the issuer and says, look, I've been wronged. And I want my money back. Now, save me, please, from your angry emails. I know that there are cases in which issuers do file chargebacks without the active participation of the cardholder. But these, I would say, first of all, shouldn't happen. And secondly, they, they would be rather rare. Uh, I think that, you know, there is also some confusion between, you know, people cardholders uh, and i hear this from merchants all the time cardholders com uh, you know complaining uh merchants complaining that they've spoken to the cardholder and the cardholder uh promised them or you know uh, that they they never filed the chargeback they have no idea what this is about nine out of ten times actually i would say ten out of ten times they're lying uh they were the originator of the chargeback and it's important to know and you know um Fraud is, is a completely different story. So when we talk about fraud, fraud, the vast majority, 99.9999% of all fraud reports are generated by the issuer without any active participation of the cardholder. And in fact, oftentimes without even the knowledge of the cardholder. And one of the main differences between uh, chargebacks and fraud, uh, in addition to that, is that Oftentimes, these are automated systems that are, are flagging transactions. And these automated systems are looking at different uh, transactional characteristics or different parameters that if they are different than their expectations or the profile that they've built for this particular cardholder, then they would trigger this as a fraudulent or a potential fraudulent uh, transaction what kind of characteristics so for instance let's say that um you are a card holder that on average in the last two years all of your transactions have been you know around the value of let's say you know a hundred pounds um every transaction and suddenly you do a transaction that uh, is four thousand pounds so any system that monitors this would see this as sort of an abnormal behavior and would flag this as, as fraudulent. Another example could be, um, and this oftentimes happens uh, when people fly abroad. Uh, again, we're talking about, you know, this utopia world before COVID. Um, you get to another country, suddenly your card issuer sees that, you know, transactions are going through uh, a different country. Um, they might flag it as fraud. It could be hour related. It could be in a particular uh, business type. So, for instance, um, if you are an older person and for some reason the issuer thinks that you're less likely to uh, do transactions online uh, or you're less likely to do transactions in a particular business type, um, for instance, I don't know if you're uh, this, is, this is actually a real case that we've we've come across. Uh, if you're a lady in her 80s and suddenly you do transactions of purchasing uh, Bitcoin, this might look as, as fraudulent to your card issuer uh, and would be flagged as such. So these are all things that typically, um, I would say in the vast majority of cases, are done by automated systems without any human intervention. 
And the main reason why everyone is so, I would say, open about this and so uh, liberal with using these fraud reports is because unlike chargebacks, they don't have any direct financial implication for the merchant. And what do I mean by that? So if, again, um, and you know, it's sometimes easier to explain this while comparing it to chargebacks. So when we look at chargebacks, chargebacks equals forced refund, money is taken out of the merchant. So if if a, a, an issuer or, or the cardholder initiates a chargeback process, so that, let's say for a hundred pounds, the merchant is going to end up at the end of that process minus 100 pounds on their balance sheet. And a fraud report doesn't work that way, so it has no financial implications. So if, if a transaction for £100 is flagged as fraudulent, nothing directly happens with the merchant at that point. So that transaction is flagged, and that that's pretty much it. Now, the reason why it is oftentimes confused is because, again, many transactions that have been flagged as fraudulent inevitably end up as a fraud-based chargeback. However, that's not mandatory. So we often see um, transactions that are reported as fraud, but don't end up as chargebacks. And we see chargebacks uh, for fraud reasons that have not been previously flagged as fraud. So it is something to, to bear in mind. Now, I've mentioned that fraud doesn't have a direct financial implication to merchants, but it does have an indirect financial implication because much like other parameters or, or for chargebacks, for example, the fraud levels of merchants are monitored. Uh, fraud levels of payment services providers, PSPs, acquirers are constantly monitored by the card schemes. Um, and if you exceed certain thresholds, uh, then there will be financial uh, repercussions. So you might have your account terminated, you might have increased um, risk measures applied against you, for instance, rolling reserve, uh, heightened um, costs, etc. And all of these, while not directly associated with uh, a particular um, fraud report, could have direct financial uh, damages. Uh, to merchants, and this is why we're talking about this, because it's important to know and be prepared to this. So, fraud reports. Um, you can sometimes hear them also referred to by different names. Uh, Visa uh, refers to fraud reports as TC40, so TC40. Um, in MasterCard, it is uh, oftentimes referred to as a safe report, and the differences between uh, both Visa and MasterCard are quite pronounced, I would say, both in the number of fraud reports and their use. This is, um, I would say, pretty much across the board, although in certain industries and in certain merchant types, you would come across the difference more than in others. The main reason is that in the past, uh, it's been sort of uh, relaxed a bit, but it's still pretty much prominent there. In the past, Visa insisted that prior to filing a chargeback uh, report, um, a chargeback, sorry, for uh, fraud-related reasons, you had to have a, that the same transaction reported as fraud. So a lot of issuers, what they did is just report uh, transactions as fraudulent wholesale just so they have the possibility of afterwards um 
filing chargebacks for these transactions. And this cre created a huge spike in uh, fraudulent transactions, which was, to be honest, not really justified. And there has been measures to sort of curb the issuer's enthusiasm in filing fraudulent uh, reports, but uh, it's still not there. Uh, in my view, uh, MasterCard has done a better job uh, in sort of holding issuers to a certain standard to make sure that they are not uh, going overboard and sort of creating a, a, a scenario in which uh, merchants seem to be more uh, problematic than they actually are. So how does, um, I think now that we've, we've understood what fraud is and what it isn't, uh, we can sort of discuss on how to, first of all, calculate this, uh, what is the uh, fraud to sale ratio and how it's calculated, and uh, what can we do about this. So the typical measurement or, or key performance indicator when we discuss fraud is something called the fraud to sales ratio or F2S. It is a percentage, much like the chargeback uh, ratios. And unlike the chargeback, is a volume-based ratio. So what you would do is you would take the total volume that has been reported of the transactions reported as fraud. So for instance, let's say 10,000, and you would divide it by the total volume of sales transactions for a given month. So let's say 100,000, and you would come up with the astronomical figure of 10%. In this, in this example. So that is your fraud to sales ratio. And typically you will hear that it needs to be below 1%. I would say it very much depends, very much like the, the chargeback ratios that we've discussed in the previous episodes. It depends very much on industry. Uh, in some industries, I would say a higher fraud uh, to sale ratio is to be expected. In other industries, it's going to be very, very low. Uh, it also depends on, on actions that you do as a merchant, because again, you need to make sure and to see whether your transactions would be considered abnormal for your market type. So the first thing that you, you need to do is calculate your fraud to sale ratio and see where it's at. Second thing is uh, try and understand where you are at compared to the industry uh, sort of standard or benchmark. Again, if you have, because look, just looking at the number and freaking out is is not the, the right approach. So the you know any number out of context is is sort of meaningless, and you need to create that context either from your own knowledge and experience or from information that you will get from your payment services provider if you ask nicely and if they know what they're doing, they'll be able to tell you, okay, your number is X, and X is greater than you know the the average in your industry or lower than the average in your in your industry and uh, sort of can point you in the in that direction and also maybe help you with sort of thinking and what would be the best approach and what you can do about that. The second thing that you need to do is try and understand why this is happening. Now, again, remember that in 99% of cases, um, the fraud reports are going to be triggered by automated systems. So we need to think on what might be the cause. What we usually recommend is start playing with statistics and start playing with the data and try to see what is the common denominator for all of these fraud reports. So uh, do all of the fraud reports happen from a certain a certain amount threshold? Then if that is if that is the case, maybe try and look at uh, pricing things differently, uh, looking at different amounts. Sometimes it could be you know three hundred. 
uh, $300 might be uh, the threshold for that particular demographic that you're you're working on. And it, it, it's as simple as just changing it to $299.95 in order not to hit that threshold. And, and then you're, you're good to go. And these transactions are not being reported as fraud. Um, maybe the issue is... Uh, the the time that your billing system uh, does this we see this sometimes with merchants that are operating in you know across you know big time zone differences so uh, you know the card issuer might be you know in japan and you might be in the u.s and uh, you know you might doing the transactions you know very far apart and it seems like it's in an abnormal hour although to you it isn't so you know maybe change that and try and run your billing system in a different hour that makes more sense it could be that your target demographics um, you know might need to actually call their uh, card issuer and let them know that, okay, I'm going to do this transaction. It's fine. I am doing this. It is by me. Uh, and that could also eliminate uh, these these things. So try again, do, the, do your statistics, try and find out what is the common denominators, what is the reason for that. And if you see that the fraud reports are sort of across the board and you can't find any kind of... Um, common ground that would would sort of explain all of this my best recommendation would be use 3d secure a lot of uh, and i know this is sort of a controversial topic because a lot of merchants don't like using 3d secure because they claim that it sort of goes against and, and harms conversion it's, it adds a certain step in the payment process that oftentimes a annoys the card holders b the more steps you, you introduce into the process, the more potential for fail you might have, be it from a technical perspective, be it from, you know, just you, you, you make the process longer and more complicated. Uh, I think that this is a bit of an old thinking. I think that today, uh, 3D Secure is, is pretty much, um, pretty much standard across the world and across most of the markets. I know that there are still markets that, you know, are not using this extensively, but most of the developed markets and many of the non-developed markets, it is, it is pretty standard. And I know five, six years ago, uh, you know, some people were surprised, you know, why, why are you directing me to my, uh, to my card issuer? Uh, what is this message? Why are you asking me to put in a code? I, I don't know what it means. Uh, today, not so much. And, uh, we have seen consistently that using 3D Secure improves the overall approval ratios of merchants, especially ones that are working across international markets. So uh, we we definitely recommend in most cases to to use it, uh, not only because it eliminates fraud uh, or significantly reduces the numbers, but also because it improves the the overall approval ratio. Now it is a very difficult question that you know only each merchant will be able to to answer to them to their own selves after they they've conducted the analysis whether the damage to conversion uh, and and you know. Being completely honest, there is a damage to conversion. Uh, whether that is offset by the improved approval ratio, in most of the cases where we've examined this, the, it did offset that, but you could be the, um, the unique case in which it didn't. 
um, and your business would be different and then it would not be a valid option for you. Although, again, depending on which markets you operate in, it might be mandatory. So nobody's asking you, you will be using 3D Secure whether you like it or not, uh, for instance, in Europe. But I don't think that this is the monster that a lot of people have portrayed it to be. Um, another thing that I would recommend that also helps with, uh, with fraud reports is have very clear communication with your cardholders. Uh, there are certain issues. Again, it's kind, it's a bit rare, but it's, I feel that it's it's sort of spreading uh, lately of having some, especially for big transactions, not having these uh, the fraud reports done 100% automatically, but having it initiated automatically, but having someone uh, look at it before filing the report and uh, oftentimes also communicating with the cardholder to see whether it's real fraud, uh, yes or no. In in these cases, it's very, very clear and it's very important for you to, um, if you've communicated very openly and transparently with the cardholder, then there is a higher likelihood for that cardholder to tell the uh, the card issuer, it's not fraud, it's fine, you know, I, I stand behind that transaction, rather than having them as well surprised and you know, mumbling in front of the, uh, the their issuer and not knowing what to do, in which case the, the likelihood of these transactions being reported as fraud is, is higher. And again, I remind you that because um, the fraud ratios are calculated based on the volume, you need to target the, the, the big ticket items um, more so than the smaller ticket items because they will have a more substantial impact on your fraud to sales ratio. And therefore, these these need to be to be covered. Yeah, as I said, it's going to be a relatively short uh, thing on what you can do because really there isn't much you can. These are these are the main things. If I had to recap, use 3D, it works, it's good. You know, we 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 recommend it. Second thing is uh, try and see what is the common denominator for the fraud reports and see if you can maybe make small amendments on your end to uh, sort of not trip on that tripwire. And that's that's pretty much it. And have, yeah, and, and again, have very clear and uh, transparent communication and uh, with your cardholders, with your customers. Uh, but that's that's pretty much best practice for everything. And that pretty much concludes our risk series. I hope it was as good for you as it was for us. I hope to at least have a couple of months of uh, time off from uh, discussing risk-related topics. Now, I'm just kidding. Miri probably give me a week. Um, and as always, uh, feel free to, to send us your uh, questions, comments, angry letters uh, saying that everything I told you about fraud is, is a lie. Uh, we, we love interacting with you guys. Uh, you're awesome. Thank you.